A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. On Saturday, Hamas militants stormed through the security barrier around Gaza taking the Israeli military by surprise and capturing every base and outpost in the vicinity. They also infamously raided an ongoing music festival underway in the desert, massacring 260 innocent civilians. Others rampaged through villages, in some cases going door-to-door and hunting for those inside, killing them or dragging them back to Gaza as hostages, where they remain held. The Israeli government responded not just with an unprecedented bombing campaign, dispensing with previous attempts at civilian protection, but with extreme collective punishment, which is against the laws of international war. Israel has said that until Hamas returns its hostages, Palestinian civilians will be deprived of food, water, and electricity. Already, thousands of innocents have been killed on both sides, and we're standing at the precipice of a catastrophic loss of life. The Israeli Air Force said that by Thursday morning, it had dropped 6,000 bombs against what it called Hamas targets and posted photos of the apocalyptic scenes left behind. Joining me today is Yusuf Munier, head of Palestine-Israel program at Arab Center in Washington, D.C., and my colleague, Alice Sperry, who has reported frequently from Israel and the West Bank. Yusuf, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks for having me. And Alice, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And so, Yusuf, uh, you and I actually spoke earlier because uh, you were generous enough to, to join uh, my show Counterpoints that I co-host in the mornings with, uh, with Emily Jashinsky. Uh, and that was about, you know, six hours ago. And I imagine that you've been pretty packed in between then. And I'm curious for you, you know, how surreal are days like this where everybody is suddenly eager to hear the perspective of a Palestinian American advocate and policy analyst when uh, may not have heard from some reporters in in some time. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, I appreciate the question. You know, um, I've been thinking about this a lot in the last um, several days. I feel like I'm trapped in, in the Groundhog Day film and unable to escape. You know, it, it's important that people are interested in what is happening now. And I'm always happy to speak to folks and try to inform them about what Palestinians are experiencing in the situation on the ground. But we have seen so many rounds of this. And my phone always tends to ring when there are uh, Israelis who are hurt by political violence. So in 2008, when there was bombardment of Gaza, people wanted to find out what I thought about that 2012, in 2014, in 2018, in 2021, and on and on. And in between those moments, there's very little interest in what Palestinian life is like, what's happening, what kind of violence is taking place, who the perpetrators are, who the victims are. And and in every one of those moments, I've said the same thing uh, over and over again. Unless we use these moments to address the root causes of political violence, we are going to be repeating this over and over again. I, I don't want to keep doing that. I want, to, I, I want to get out of this film. I want everybody there to get out of it as well. 
and I, you know, I, I just hope that um, somebody somewhere with some decision-making capacity learns some lessons about how not to just keep repeating this. And, and Alicia, I want to get your take on this question too, but Yusuf, I'm curious, thinking about this, this cycle of in- interest when there is violence, lack of interest for a year or two years, then interest again, going back. Uh, it, it makes me think about what Hamas did in its, in its assault. You know, Hamas is not, you know, whatever you want to say about them, they're not stupid, they're strategic. They, they had to know that massacres of civilians were going to cost, you know, significant amounts of Western, you know, sympathy or, or support. And it makes me wonder if they made a calculation that all of the Western so-called sympathy that they have engendered, that the Palestinian cause has engendered over the years, has not led them any closer to any type of autonomy or dignity or liberation. And in fact, every day just seems to get harder and worse. And so it feels like there may have been a calculation that said, you know what, it's just not worth it anymore. Like what, what, is, this, what is this supposed goodwill getting us? I'm curious though, from your perspective, how both Hamas, but also Palestinians in general, do they think about kind of Western support and interest in the cause? And how do you think that that relates to what happened over the last week? You know, I, uh, I, I don't know exactly what they are thinking. Uh, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to say, but I think that the main audience that they're communicating to is, is not, uh, to Western publics. I'm not, I'm not sure that they're particularly concerned about that. I think they're trying to send messages to Israeli leaders, uh, about their decision-making more than, uh, anything else. Obviously, all of these events have impact on, you know, perceptions of the situation here in the United States and, and, and elsewhere. Um, but, you know, for, for the, the average Palestinian who's been stuck in Gaza for a decade and a half, who's grown up uh, for the past 15 years or so under this siege and has seen six or seven different wars every other year of their life, I'm sorry, but they don't give a rat's ass about public opinion polling here in the United States. It, right. doesn't, it doesn't make a difference to them. And that's a decision itself to say, you know what, that's not our audience. Like there's no point anymore. Like that's not who- Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just such an abstract concept to people who are mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, dealing with life and death right now and feel completely abandoned by the world. So I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know what the strategic calculus is, but it seems to me the focus uh, is largely on trying to send messages to Israeli leaders about the sustainability of their policy more than, more than anything else. Yeah. And I, I've been, I was just thinking about this over the last couple of days as I've seen so many people saying, oh, well now, now they've lost me now. they've And I was thinking, well, okay, well, what were you doing? Like, you know, if they lost you, then apparently they had you a week ago. What were you doing? Like, how was that benefiting them at all? Uh, Alice, I'm curious for your take on the way that Israeli public opinion has unfolded over over the past year, because there's there's so much more nuance going on in the Israeli conversation as it relates to the war than there is here in the United States. Uh, I'm thinking particularly about the the kind of famous by now Haaretz uh, editorial saying that one person is responsible for this and his name is Benjamin Netanyahu, which is the kind of thing that uh, if you say over here, 
you know, gets you canceled, gets you tagged as anti-Semitic or somebody who doesn't, uh, you know, approach this with the appropriate sensitivity. Yet that's the that's becoming an increasingly mainstream opinion over there. Uh, you've spent a lot of, lot of time there recently. What's your sense of how the Israeli Jewish public is re- is responding to this? Yeah, I mean, I really spent more time in the West Bank than in Israel per se, but I think in, in general, there's more of a kind of like an understanding of the context and the historical background to this among some Israelis uh, than certainly there is here speaking to American audiences. I mean, I think one thing that strikes me as someone who's been covering Israel and Palestine for more than a decade and kind of writing the same stories over and over and over again and kind of talking about the untenable, unsustainable situation. One thing that strikes me here in the U.S. is how everybody seems to have woken up on Saturday uh, as if there had been no history to any of this. Uh, So, you know, like the really kind of short-lived memory and sort of lack of context surrounding some of the discourse in the U.S., I think is something that, you know, it's it's not something you, you see as much in Israel because you know, Israelis have been, if anything, aware of this um, for for a long time. But yeah, I mean, I think this really has been one of the most frustrating things in the last few days is this idea that, you know, we have done this before. We have said this before. We have written these stories many, many, many times. And, you know, usually you see a media surge around the latest bombing campaign, and which, you know, has, as Yusuf noted, have been, you know, becoming more and more frequent. I remember first writing about this in 2008. Now it feels like, you know, it's, it used to be every couple of years. Now it's every year. And this is unlike anything we've seen. But, you know, every time we feel like we're starting from, from scratch, basically, in terms of like, you know, even just like explaining the very basics of what is happening. Like, I, you know, every time I write a story about this, I feel like I have to do a primer. And it is incredibly frustrating uh, how the, you know, the discourse hasn't really budged much. Yeah. And, and Yusuf, you, of course, there's the, the underlying structural oppression that you're talking about, the the occupation, the the siege, the history. And then there's also the the rightward shift of the Israeli government over over the past year and some, you know, specific decisions, you know, made by that government to encourage pogroms in, in the West Bank to push push ahead with de facto annexation in the West Bank. And in doing that, to pull, you know, military resources from the South, which my understanding is a, tends to be a left-leaning area. So it's probably in in some tension with the right wing government, and so I could, I can imagine both things: a they want to move resources to the West Bank for this annexation project, and also they're fine kind of pulling resources away from from the South, these folks that they consider not to be their political allies. Do you think that this was fueled by that kind of right rightward shift and that and that movement of resources, or do you think that even absent that? you would have been likely to have seen this be just because of the structural oppression underway. Well, I think that uh, the rightward shift, the direction of Israeli politics absolutely played into this. And I think that, you know, everybody in the region, not just Palestinians in Gaza and, and Hamas and, and others, but, but American allies in the region have been warning about this, have been saying, you, you look, for example, at the statement of the Arab League from February of this year. They all come out and said, you know, we are moving towards an explosive situation in Palestine if if this issue is not addressed. Uh, and the direction that the Israeli government is going in, the provocations and so on in the West Bank and Jerusalem and elsewhere are, are going to lead to, to things like this. So, um, you know, I think that the, the direction that this government has taken has absolutely contributed to these events. And when it comes to Israeli politics, 
you know, we have seen in the past year a massive debate within Israel about what direction the country needs to take to safeguard Israel's existence, security, and identity. And there have been clear lines drawn between two different camps. The Netanyahu camp, which has been led by a figure who his entire life has made himself out to be Mr. Security. His entire political career is built around the claim that he can keep Israel secure more than anybody else. And of course, on the other side, you have many people who used to work for Netanyahu, many of his political acolytes uh, who've broken with him because of his political corruption, but are nonetheless right-wingers when it comes to Palestine, saying, no, no, you, you are actually a security threat. You're taking Israel in the wrong direction. You are dividing the country. You're weakening the security establishment. I think the events of the last several days have shown that Benjamin Netanyahu, among Israelis, will be associated forever with the greatest security failure in the history of the state of Israel. That is very difficult to come back from. That's not to say that he's not going to try. But I think the impact on Israeli politics of this is going to be significant. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And Alici, as people have been trying to follow this, there's been a confluence of, as uh, Yusuf was talking about earlier, ba basically no Western press in, in Gaza. Gazans running low on, on battery power internet, finding it increasingly difficult to communicate, coupled with the takeover of Twitter by Elon Musk, which Twitter was never you know, necessarily the most reliable place for news. But in previous crises, you could at least distinguish between more authoritative and less authoritative sources. And it just seems that there's been a proliferation of, of hoaxes and fraud, coupled with like outright propaganda getting pushed to the point where it's very difficult for people to have any idea what's, what to believe and what not to believe. Uh, you've got a piece uh, in The Intercept on, on this phenomenon. What are you finding that's like different this time? And, and how, do you have any advice for people to navigate this? Yeah, I mean, I think this has been a huge issue and, and, and not just with this, you know, with, with this weekend's violence, we've seen this also last year with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, like the amount of just unverified, uncorroborated information that was going viral within minutes uh, and, you know, very little effort to, to verify, and, and very, you know, it, very challenging for journalists to verify, although I'll say, you know, a lot of journalists have contributed to kind of spreading some of the information. There's a lot we've seen in, in the last few days. You know, we've we've seen horrific reports coming out of both Israel and Gaza. And then we've seen some really incendiary ones kind of spreading, aided by, you know, U.S. political figures, uh, 
by Israeli political figures and just including the including the president even right yes and and also you know we've we've seen a lot of these kind of basically some of what we've been trying to do at, at the intercept is just tracing the origin of some of these claims uh, which you know we have not independently verified but the IDF has not independently verified and I actually just spoke with the IDF about some of the most egregious claims about you know beheaded beheaded babies for instance which is something that you know multiple. U.S. politicians have repeated that it's all over the networks. And, you know, the Israeli military itself would not confirm something that, you know, is being attributed to, to soldiers. So this kind of shows you some of the challenges. And I think it's certainly that the kind of transformation of Twitter under Musk is, um, is contributed to that. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not the only problem, but um, it, it just kind of shows, you know, that it's kind of like the enormous responsibility we have, particularly at a time when, information is just uh, so loopsided. I mean, we know people in Gaza losing electricity, not being able to report citizen journalists who, you know, usually kind of document life in the strip, like are unable to do so. We know that at least six journalists have been killed in Gaza since this started. Uh, I mean, and, and this is not unique to this, you know, this latest violence, of course. I mean, Palestinian journalists have been targeted, as we know very well. We had the intercept of cover shooting Abu Akhlis killing for the last year. And, uh, and so we, we, we see really a, a, an attack on those that are kind of seeking to, to, to provide the information at the same time when you have all of this unverified information that's, that's spreading online. Yusuf, how have you been navigating uh, this kind of information and media space? You know, there, there's, there's a tremendous amount of misinformation right now. There's any time you have these, these massive events, uh, there are people that look to take advantage of this. There are people who look to spread misinformation. You have to look at the role also of state actors trying to deliberately manipulate the scene uh, because of um, what their interests are on the battlefield or elsewhere in terms of diplomacy. We saw that in uh, 2021, when the Israelis flat out lied to the media and then had to admit that they did. Um, and of course, they targeted a, a building belonging to the Associated Press and, and, and Al Jazeera as well at that time. What was the lie they told at the time? Do you mean you mean about Hamas being in that building or? No, no, about uh, I think it, it was involving troop movements or something like that. They essentially used the used the media for operational purposes at the time and it outraged many, many people. Oh, that's right. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and it's certainly not the first time that there is there is disinformation sent out by the Israeli military. But, you know, at the same time. You know, Twitter has become something of a wasteland. It is ex extremely unfortunate to see. But the first time I remember finding Twitter useful was, um, uh, you know, around world events um, because it is so hard to reach certain voices around the world and hear from them in the mainstream media here in the United States. Many people remember the Green Revolution be in Iran being sort of one of these major moments where they started following world events on Twitter. But for me, it was Israel's war in 2008, 2009 on Gaza. Uh, with the only Western reporters on the ground were working for Al Jazeera English, and the only way that they were getting information out was on Twitter. And so, um, you know, for people who are used to following events like this in places like Gaza and other war zones and other places where voices of people from the region are underrepresented, it remains an essential space to navigate despite uh, all of the misinformation and attempts by others to, to manipulate the discourse. And uh, Aliche, uh, you were in the West Bank recently doing reporting on Shireen Abu Akhla's, uh killing and the investigation that followed. 
how how do you how do you feel like uh, Israel's I guess what would what would the word be impunity lack of lack of sense that there will be accountability is is leading to the sense that an overwhelming response a, a complete flattening of of Gaza might be just simply accepted by the West. Yeah, you know we we've published a story earlier this week. Uh, precisely about how the impunity for Israeli crimes up to this moment has really led to the crimes we've seen over the last weekend. I mean, we have seen crimes that very well may amount to war crimes and crimes against humanity by Hamas and and crimes in response to those by, by you know, the Israeli government, which is essentially declaring a siege on like 2 million people, like threatening to starve 2 million people by cutting off food and fuel. And, um, and then, of course, these like, you know, uh, bombing campaigns that are like indiscriminately targeting civilians. All of these are war crimes. There has been an international criminal court um, investigation open in Palestine since 2021 uh, with very little movement, very little progress. This is an investigation that both the U.S. and the Israeli government have very fiercely opposed, uh, and neither member, neither, neither country is a member to the international criminal court. But that is precisely what, what you have international um, international law mechanisms for, and this is something Palestinian political leadership for, you know, all of the legitimacy problems they might have with a lot of the Palestinian public. That's something that the Palestinian leadership has invested massively in this, you know, this international mechanism of accountability. And, you know, we've covered the, we've covered the invasion of Ukraine and we saw within like days of the invasion starting last year, the International Criminal Court dispatching investigators to Ukraine starting, you know, they opened an office in Ukraine they very quickly started a case that, you know, implicated leadership all the way up to, to Russian President Vladimir Putin. We've seen none of that in Israel, even though there were calls for this investigation to be open for years before it actually happened. Uh, there have been multiple reports that, you know, have been submitted to the ICC. Um, Shirin Abouakla's killing is just one of many cases that have been presented um, to the court. But but with Shirin Abouakla, since we're talking about her, I think, you know, another important failure to highlight here is that of the U.S. government. I mean, Shirin Wakla was not just a Palestinian journalist, she's also an American citizen. And as we have written about many times before, she was one of several U.S. citizens who were killed by Israeli forces with absolute impunity. To this day, the U.S. government has done nothing about her killing. It has done nothing about the killing of other Palestinian Americans. It has done nothing about the killing of Rachel Corey, who was killed in Gaza 20 years ago. Uh, and so there is really like, a, you know, a, a history of, of failure to hold those responsible for these crimes accountable. And when you have impunity, as any kind of international law expert will tell you, when you have that impunity, you'll see the crimes repeated and, and the growing wars. We saw that with Ukraine, where, you know, Russian crimes in Syria went unpunished and were repeated in Ukraine. We are seeing this over and over in Palestine. And so really, I think there's a, a massive failure of our international justice mechanisms here. And um, the ICC prosecutor has been quite silent on this. Um, I asked the office for for comment and, um, you know, they basically told us that the case is ongoing and it applies to current crimes. And if anybody has any information, here's the tip line. And, you know, this is really as much as they did when, you know, previous prosecutor of the ICC kind of put out preventative statements, warning parties that these, you know, these crimes fall under the court's jurisdiction and kind of like letting them know that, you know, we're watching. That has not happened in this case. And and Yusuf, to go back to, for a second to that Haaretz editorial that talked about uh, one man is responsible for this, you know, Benjamin and Netanyahu. I think obviously it goes without saying that Haaretz also says, well, of course, you know, 
Hamas has some agency in the way that it carries this out. And obviously, Haaretz does not support like massacring uh, civilians. At the same time, Hamas itself is also, in some ways, a, a creation or some or somewhat the responsibility of Benjamin Netanyahu or and of the Israeli government. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship, that the weird dialectical relationship between the Israeli government and Hamas? So I think you know I, I I wouldn't necessarily say the Israeli government and Hamas on their own, but I would say this has played out in the context of the Israeli government's relationship to Gaza over the last two decades. Uh, you know, when the Israeli government decided to quote unquote disengage from Gaza, which effectively meant to change the nature of their occupation of Gaza by pulling their ground forces and settlers out, um, they decided not to coordinate uh, the handover with the Palestinian Authority. Uh, and ultimately, after elections in 2006, when Hamas came to power, there was a divide between the West Bank and Gaza. And this was a divide that was exploited by the Israelis very much. In fact, in 2004, when that disengagement was taking place, um, Haaretz once again reported on the comments of the advisor to Ariel Sharon at the time saying, look, the disengagement with Gaza is formaldehyde for the peace process. This prevents us from having to do anything moving forward on negotiations with the Palestinians. It brings the idea of a peace deal to an end. And, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, despite being opposed to the disengagement at the time, has made a, you know, uh, a career out of saying, uh, if we withdraw from the West Bank, look at Gaza, that's what we're going to get. And at the same time, he has played a role in keeping Hamas in power in Gaza while also making sure that they bomb the Strip repeatedly. Um, and so they have determined that this situation of constant political instability and violence is preferable over making some kind of larger political agreement that would actually lead to a final status outcome to bring peace between Israelis and Palestinians. And they have chosen this path over that. Uh, and I, you know, I think we are seeing the results of that on full display in, in recent days. And can you talk a little bit about, and Liche, curious for your take on this too, can you talk a little bit about what Palestinians in Gaza had been doing over the years Nonviolently, and and Alicia, I'd like your get your answer on the West Bank. So, some of those uh, movements over there, nonviolent, because I think this goes back to the original question that I asked you, which is that when violence flares up, you know, you're on the horn. You know, when the uh, I don't want to say the violence goes away because the violence is there every single day, uh, but when it's not in the news, you know, you're less on the phone with reporters. But that doesn't mean there aren't civil society actions and, and movements and pressure marches other organized ways to push the Palestinian cause forward in Gaza. Can you talk a little bit about some, what, what some of those have been and what the Israeli response was? You know, look, there's, <laughs> there have been so many efforts to try to raise awareness about the situation and demand accountability. Every uh, human rights organization with any credibility has been screaming about this. Uh, situation in Gaza for years. The United Nations and you know international organizations like them have declared the situation in Gaza unlivable. We've seen civil society organizations, Israeli, Palestinian, and international, uh, speak out about uh, Israel's policies to the Palestinians uh, amounting to the crime of apartheid. 
We have, as uh, was discussed, efforts to approach the ICC uh, that have been uh, going on, efforts to uh, call for international... That was, called, that was called diplomatic terrorism, if, if I recall correctly. You know, anything Palestinians do, they will be, uh, uh, you know, uh, framed as terrorism. Right. If they boycott, it's economic terrorism. If they write articles, it's journalistic terrorism. If they speak at the United Nations, it's diplomatic terrorism. You know, and and I, you know th- these these are actual claims that have been made by Israeli officials. If it sounds absurd, please you know go look it up because mm-hmm. this is this is uh, the level of of discourse uh, around this. And in Gaza, they were holding uh, picnics and kind of uh, kind of celebratory events near the fence in a way to kind of draw attention. And uh, in, in 2018, there was the Great Return March, which was a uh, mobilization that went on for over a year before it even began. The Israeli defense minister dispatched 100 snipers to the border with Gaza. Uh, and by the end of this mobilization, there was close to 40,000 Palestinians who were either killed or injured in the process. And the West effectively shrugged. Uh, and I, I just want to raise one point about the ICC because it was it was mentioned earlier in the Ukraine piece in particular. The the White House, and the United States administration welcomed the involvement of the ICC in the case of Ukraine. They actively oppose it in the case of Palestine. And this is a White House that speaks about the importance of a rules based international order. So the question is rules for whom, uh, and and when and how do these apply? And I think a, a, a major focus of American foreign policy on this issue has been to send the message to Palestinians that international law does not apply to you. You exist outside the rules. And, you know, I think this, of course, creates an extremely dangerous uh, uh, environment. Uh, and we're seeing it. We're seeing it now. And, and Alice, we sometimes hear when violence flares up in the West Bank, often Oftentimes we don't, but there have also been a lot of nonviolent efforts under, underway there. Can you talk a little bit about what's what's been done in the West Bank and how that's been met? Yeah, I mean, some of the diplomatic efforts that we talked about earlier that you mentioned the Israeli government, you know, basically described as diplomatic terrorism, like the PA's effort to get you know, the ICC involved. Uh, we've also seen the Israeli government declare six major Palestinian um, NGOs, terrorist organizations with like absolutely no basis, as we've reported on. And, and these are organizations that have done incredible work documenting the, the constant human rights abuses by the Israeli military and settlers and others. It, it, and, and they have been they've been targeted specifically because of their work documenting these crimes. Uh, there's always been a tradition of popular resistance in Palestine, but I think what's incredibly frustrating for Palestinians is that they always get asked to comment about the violence when there are you know, when, when, when there is violence by Palestinians, like what we saw on Saturday, and they're, they are never really asked about the kind of like daily killings. I mean, we saw last year in the West Bank, we had the highest number of, of casualties of people killed since the Intifada. And, and, um, and the year before, you know, it, it's, it's, it's been escalating uh, and with very little interest from people outside of the region. Um, there's been you know, there's been some coverage around some of the most egregious events. We saw um, an assault on Hawara outside of Nablus earlier this year by by settlers. Settler violence in general has been really spiraling out of control under the current government. It had been exponentially growing over the years, but it, it's really reached kind of like untenable levels. But we see very little response to that. And for the most part, you know, Palestinian like getting on with their daily lives is nonviolent resistance. I mean, you know, I've written 
a long story, for instance, about communities in Masafariata, which is this, you know, this part of the Southern West Bank that's um, under evacuation order where people are being forcibly displaced, constantly attacked by settlers. They And just by, you know, going to their fields and farming and staying at home, that's nonviolent resistance. And that's something that, you know, we've written about, but but very few people seem to be interested in. And Yusuf, last question for you. Uh, you know, we're witnessing and I think also about to witness a, a, cat- a catastrophe in Gaza, a civilian humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza of, of unimaginable scale. On Tuesday night, President Biden gave an, a national, his first national address on the question and did not even kind of hint, as far as I could tell, at the notion that civilian lives ought to be uh, protected as this assault unfolds. You know, how, how are you, how are you feeling as we're n- not just on the precipice, but in the midst of this uh, ongoing slaughter? You know, I think it's an extremely dangerous moment. You had not only the speech by President Biden, but importantly, a statement by the United States, along with several other Western governments coming just before that, which made no mention of the importance of respecting international law during hostilities. Uh, All the while, the United States is sending uh, expedited arms uh, to Israel in this moment, sending aircraft carriers to the region to send a message that uh, do, do what you will in the dark in Gaza and we'll make sure nobody gets involved. This is extremely dangerous stuff, extremely dangerous stuff. The Israeli ambassador was on TV the other day uh, and was interviewed here and said, you know, uh, in response to a question of what do you expect from America? And he said, well, usually you guys only hug us on the first day. Uh, We want to make sure you guys keep giving us a big hug several weeks into this. And there is no sign right now uh, that Western leaders and particularly the United States are sending any other message than a green light for atrocities on the ground. Uh, And you have Israel responding to the biggest attack it's ever faced, led by the most unhinged government in Israeli history. Uh, so the, 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 the storm that is brewing here brings together some very, very dark clouds. Well, uh, Alice, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And Yusuf, thanks for joining me again today. Good to be with you. Thanks, Ryan. That was Yusuf Munier and Elice Sperry, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by William Stanton. Legal review by David Brelo. Leonardo Fireman transcribed this episode. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com or at ryan.grim at theintercept.com. Put deconstructed in the subject line. Otherwise, we might miss your message. Thanks so much, and we'll see you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 